This is Jason Hansen, pastor of Anchor Church. Thank you for jumping onto our sermon podcast. My prayer is that as you listen to this sermon, you're encouraged in your walk with Jesus and that you live for him in all of life. Enjoy the sermon now. Uh, this morning, we're in the book of Ephesians, chapter four, as we're continuing on in this series. We call it We Are we're finding identity in the book of Ephesians as Paul continues to use these in Christ phrases, this language that helps us form an identity around our faith in Christ. And we continue on this morning in chapter four, but this morning marks a turning point in the book. And we've kind of talked about this over the last number of weeks that chapters one, two, and three are, are really expounding on the goodness of God, the glory of the gospel, what he's done for us in Christ. And then chapters four, five, and six take a turn. And this is where Paul really spells out, okay, based on what God has done for us, how should we respond? How then shall we live? You can think of it that way. And that's where we begin this morning in Ephesians 4, is that first, how then shall we live uh, passage. We're going to cover verses one through six this morning. Uh, When I was in high school, I bought my first car from a neighbor. Uh, It was a Chevy Sprint. Most of you probably won't know what that is. It's a pretty obscure uh, little car, and Kevin knows. He's nodding his head. Kevin knows because he's a gearhead. Uh, it was a Chevy Sprint, and I bought it from a neighbor for 1200 bucks. I was working at Dairy Queen at the time, so I paid him off. You know, Every paycheck, I'd give him like 100 bucks or something until it was finally mine. And as a 16-year-old, I drove that car like you imagine a 16-year-old would. Uh, maybe like you did when you were 16, maybe like some of you do now as 16-year-olds. I'm looking at you, Taylor. Um, I drove that car. <laughs> I drove it hard, but it was an old car. It was a 1987. This was maybe 2006, so that the car had some years on it, some miles on it, and it you know, wasn't a, a very well-built car, I imagine, and so things broke on it, uh, and I would fix them with the help of my brother-in-law, who was a mechanic. Uh, but at one point, a piece broke that almost broke the whole car. There was, it was a stick shift, and there was a, a mechanism on top of the transmission that the cable from the clutch connected to. And when you press the clutch in, this would engage the clutch. There were teeth on it. Um, and and that, the teeth on it wore out from me jamming that clutch over and over as I was driving it, learning how to drive stick. Uh, the problem was, because it's an obscure car, I couldn't just go down to AutoZone and get a new part. In fact, I couldn't even go to the Chevy dealership and get a new part. It didn't exist. They didn't make them anymore. So I went to every junkyard I could find in South Phoenix trying to find this part so my car could run again, but it was nowhere to be found. I couldn't find any of these cars even in the junkyard. And so we finally got to the point, my brother-in-law and I, where we decided that we had to find the strongest possible bond to hold these two pieces together. Because if we didn't, the car wasn't going to move. The clutch wasn't going to engage. It was just going to sit and be stuck. And so we ended up welding the two pieces together. Okay, we ended up just getting out the welder, and now you'll never replace those two parts. They are forever linked together through the bond of a weld, and hopefully one or the other doesn't break in a different part because they're stuck together at this point. But I had to do it in order for the car to move. It would be useless otherwise. And this morning, we're going to talk about the church. And the church is God's vehicle for the kingdom of God on earth. It's God's vehicle to to bring about the kingdom of God on earth. But there's a problem that we have. If you've been around the church for any amount of time, you know this, there is brokenness in the church. There, There are parts that break and threaten the church from moving forward. And we need the strongest possible bond 
to hold us together. But here's, here's the problem. If you're like me, and I think some of you are, if you're like me, when, when there's brokenness in the vehicle of God's kingdom on, our, on earth in the church, we'd just as soon get a new vehicle rather than fix it, right? You go, yeah, just send it off to the junkyard. Just get a new vehicle. What's it worth? Problem is, there's only one vehicle. There's only one vehicle. God has made one vehicle for the kingdom of earth, uh, the kingdom of God on earth. It is the church. But the good news is that he is holding us together with the strongest bond possible. This is what we're going to see in the book of Ephesians this morning, that God is holding us together with an amazing bond. And it's good news for us because what we're going to find this morning, this is our big idea, is that in Christ, when we're bound together, glory abounds. It's good news that God is holding us together because in Christ, when we are bound together, glory abounds. We're going to see that in Ephesians chapter four this morning. We're going to cover verses one through six. I'm going to read all the way through verse 16 because that's really the whole section of context here. We'll cover the second half next week, but you can follow along with me in your Bible this morning. This is God's word to us. Ephesians four, uh, chapter four, verse one says, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each, each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men and women. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's a long section to start us off. We're going to cover verses one through six this morning. And this is the beginning of Paul's to-dos, okay? Chapters one through three, all about what Jesus has done for us, all about the glory of God, all about the goodness of God. Just sit and think about it. Sit and and just marvel at what God has done. But don't stay there. In in chapter four, chapter five, and chapter six, it's okay, now get up and follow him. Do the work. And where does he start? He starts with the church. The to-dos start with the church. Starts with unity here in verses one through six. And the reason for this is because the dues of the Christian life are meant to be done together. The dues of the Christian life are meant to be done together. We've, we've got to establish that right from the jump here. Paul's doing it. Anything else he's going to talk about, all these other to dos, they are done together. And he establishes that by starting with 
unity in the church. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through verses one through six and look at unity. What does it mean to have unity? How? And, and, and what is the what and the why? And then we'll apply it to our lives. We'll take communion and we'll sing a few more songs. But we're going to start with thinking about unity where Paul does with the motivation for unity. Verse one, Paul lays out the motivation. Why have unity in Christ? Why be united? Well, he tells us in verse one, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This calling that you've been called to Christian, that I've been called to as a Christian, this calling is the motivation for unity, There's this glorious calling. God has done amazing things. We've talked about it in chapters one through three. We're we're talking about being brought from death to life by the power of the spirit. We're talking about being alienated from God to being included in the people of God. We're talking about being, uh, being, being far away and being brought near. We're talking about being children of wrath and now children of God. This is what Christ has done for us. This is the calling that you've been called to come near the God of creation, come near the people of God. And Paul is urging us, he says that there, feel the emotion of that. He's urging us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And the most immediate context for this calling is the doxology that we looked at last week. Jason talked about this, this this reality where Paul bursts out in praise to the God who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or that that we think. To this God whose power is at work within us. He says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. This calling, Anchor Church, that you've been called to is a glorious calling. To him be glory in the church. Now walk in a manner worthy of that glory. What is Paul doing? He's laying a foundation of identity, right? We're talking about we are, finding identity in the book of Ephesians. Right here is identity. Find your identity in this calling to which you've been called. It's based on the glory of the God of creation. Walk in that glory, Paul's telling us. Walk in the glory that's been made known to you and that you are now a part of. In all of chapters four through six, we'll describe this walk. What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the the calling to which you've been called? Read chapters four through six, but he starts right here with unity. Unity. Be together. You see the word one repeated over and over. It's the motivation for unity. It's the calling, the glorious calling to which you've been called. And Paul goes on to spell out some tools for unity. Okay, so then what what are the tools to bring about this unity? We see him in verses two through three. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It's an interesting list that he starts with here these tools for unity, because think about human nature. Paul just told you, you have a glorious calling. It's amazing. The God of all creation has made you new. He's made you his. Now go walk in humility. That's kind of the opposite of what we expect for human nature, right? Think about the old classic, The Lion King. And you've got Simba, he's taken up and, and, and he's shown the pride land. Interesting phrase there, right? The pride land. And Mufasa says, all of this is going to be yours. This is your calling. It's a glorious calling to reign over all of this. And for a a lion, Simba has a very human response, doesn't he? He comes down that hill singing, I can't wait to be king. I'm going to be standing in the spotlight. I'm going to do whatever I want. No one's going to tell me what to do. 
And then he goes in his, his pride and his selfishness, he takes a friend along with him to a dangerous place. He says, I laugh in the face of danger. Ha ha ha, right? A very human response for a lion. And as Christians, we can do this too. We, I, I know I did this. I heard the gospel, learned this theology, and I went and said, all right, I got it. I'm the man. Let me go beat people over the head with my theology, with this reality of, of who God is and what he's done for me. And Paul corrects that right off the jump. He knows human nature. He knows human nature. This is a glorious calling you've been given. And the only way that you're gonna have unity is if you have humility. You don't have unity without humility. It's a tool that we need. He goes on to say, in gentleness. You're not gonna have unity where, there's harsh, where you're being harsh with one another, where you're being mean to one another. He's saying you should have gentleness. Clearly Paul didn't have Twitter in his day, right? It's not a place of gentleness. But that's our calling as Christians. Be united in, in humility and with gentleness, with patience, right? Because the people around you in the church are sinners. If you didn't know that, let me, let me cue you in. The people around you, you look around right now, you are surrounded by sinners. And guess what? You are a sinner. So you need patience in order to be united with the people around you. People are gonna have different preferences. You're gonna have different preferences. Patience is going to be needed for unity. Another tool is to bear with one another in love. So motivated by love, by considering another's feelings greater than your own, we bear with one another. We, we stay committed. We overlook offense where we can. These are all tools for unity. But there's an even greater tool in here that Paul mentions that we might look over if we're not careful. In verse three, he says to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That bond of peace is a tool for unity. And it's not one that we come up with. It's a gift of the spirit. The, the same spirit of God that lives in you, lives in your neighbor, lives in that person in community group that you don't like, that same spirit of God is there and he brings about this bond of Peace. I like the way that Lynn Kohick says it. She's a, a theologian. She says this, as individuals participate in Christ's life, as their lives are made new in Christ, they are also made new to each other and become a new entity, Christ's body. The bond of peace, therefore, speaks to the interconnections of believers within the church who are all in Christ. I'll think about that with me for a moment, church. This is amazing. What has the spirit done? He's made us a new entity, a new being together, connected by the spirit. It's called the body of Christ. It's amazing what the spirit has done. And just as we've been made new in Christ, we're made new to one another and made a new entity. This is the bond of peace. It's one of the tools that we've been given to, uh, to maintain this unity. And, and what Paul is telling us here is simply that you've been made in the image of the triune God. Okay, if you don't know what, what, what I'm saying when I say triune, it simply means that God, there's one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, okay? And that is the place of unity right there. It exists in the Godhead. One God existing in perfect communion, Father, Son, and Spirit. And you and I have been made in his image. We've been made for community. We've been made for oneness. We've been made for unity. And Paul is saying here, that is the bond of peace. Walk in it. This is identity language. He's encouraging us. This is your identity. You've been made new in the image of God. Walk in that. And so then we get to the calling for unity. He says it there in the beginning of verse three. 
He says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I like the way the NIV translates it. It says, make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Think about that with me. Make every effort. Leave no stone unturned in your desire for community and unity within the church. Uh, we, We often don't think about that in our Christian development, do we? This is something maybe we leave out often, but Paul here is telling us, this is the to-do in the passage right here. This is what it is. Make every effort to be united, to have unity, to lean into the spirit, uh, this, this bond of peace brought about by the spirit. And notice what we're not called to do, which is establish the bond of peace. That's not what we're called to do. No, it's not ours to establish because it's, it's God empowered. It's God who brings it about. No, we're called to maintain to keep it up, to be the ones who in humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another, lean in to that unity that's been established by the spirit of God. It's his to maintain, it's ours to keep. We need to get that right. If it's ours to, to, to make, then, then we're not gonna make it. We can't do it, it's beyond us. But it's ours to, to keep. We don't establish it. Now, if you read this and you think, man, Paul, where did he get this from? Where did he get this from? Why is he so heavy on this unity language? Where else in the Bible do I find this? Well, if you know uh, your, your gospels, you might recognize that Paul is simply uh, giving a command that's based on a prayer of Jesus himself. So in John chapter 17, if you've never read it, it's a whole chapter that's a prayer of Jesus. So if you ever think, you've heard the, the scripture passage that says that Jesus intercedes for us right now. You ever think, what does Jesus pray for me? You know what? Maybe you don't want to know what Jesus prays for you. But you ever think, what is Jesus praying for me? Well, I don't know everything he's praying for you, but I do have this right here. This is a prayer from Jesus for you, recorded by John. It's in John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. He has prayed up until this point for his immediate disciples. And then he turns and he prays for you and I right here. He says this, John 17, verse 20. Jesus is praying, I do not ask for these only, being his disciples, his immediate disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I. We've believed in Jesus through the word of God. The New Testament handed down to us by the apostles. That's us. Jesus is praying for us now. Okay, what's Jesus gonna pray for us? Verse 21, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. That's calling for unity, to maintain the, the, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It's, it's Jesus' prayer for you and for me. That's what he prays for. All the things you could pray for someone, especially in your last, your final hours. What does Jesus pray for? That we'd be united that we'd be one in Christ together. Why? Because when we are, glory abounds. Glory abounds, brings glory to God like no one else can. This, this bond that he has created in Christ. So what is the bond itself? We find this in Ephesians 4, verses four through six. This is the bond right here, the bond that unites. What is it? What are the meat and potatoes here? There is one style of worship 
and one philosophy of ministry. Just as you were called to one political ideology that belongs to your call. One uh, translation of the Bible. One understanding of baptism. Wait, hold on. He's not saying any of that, is he? One understanding of secondary issues like the work of the spirit and the women and men in ministry. No, none of that. All the things that separate us aren't even mentioned here, are they? What, what is the bond? These seven theological realities. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Church, this is what binds us together right here. This is it, right here. What is the bond of peace that the spirit brings about? It's based on these things, one body. As a Christian, you've been called to be the body of Christ. You've been called into one body. And just as my finger can't decide it doesn't wanna be a part of my body anymore and hop off and run away, we can't separate from the body. We, we just can't do it. We've been called together. It's what unites us. One body, one spirit. We've talked about this. The spirit of God fills each of us as Christians and the spirit of God fills us uniquely as gathered believers. It's one spirit. The spirit of God fills you as much as the spirit of God fills that Christian that drives you nuts. It's one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. This hope is the hope of eternal life. This hope is what Jesus promised that if we know him, we would have eternal life now and forever. This is the hope of coming to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life that whoever believes in him, though he die, yet he will live forever. This is the hope that we have and it's only found in Jesus. There's no other place that you can go for eternal life. Every other place is death. And that, that hope binds us together. One Lord one Lord, or you could say one king. These are people reading this who would have been familiar with what it means to live under a king. And when you live under a king, you are united in your allegiance to that king. If you're not united in your allegiance to that king, you are treasonous and you are executed, right? They understand what this means. We have a different understanding because we, we live in a democracy, so it's hard for us to think about kingship, but we are called under King Jesus to complete allegiance together to him and him alone. We share that together. Jesus is our primary allegiance. One faith, this is the faith in Jesus. This is trust and what he has done, who he is, that he is God the son, that he lived a perfect life for you, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose again, that he is seated at the hand of the father right now. This is the faith that we share we don't find it in any other savior. There's only one savior and that faith unites us. It brings us together. It's the only place where you find it is in the church. One baptism, and this isn't speaking to one mode of baptism. It's not saying so only if you believe in pedo-baptism, which is baptizing babies, or only if you believe in believer-baptism, which is baptizing someone once they profess faith. That's the one baptism. No, it's just one baptism into Christ. I don't care about the mode of baptism. You are baptized into Christ. It's a, a representation of your death to sin as you go under the water and being raised to new life with Jesus just as he is raised to new life. It unites us. 
This reality of being made alive in Jesus, which baptism represents, it unites us, it brings us together. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are united under the one true God. He's the God of of Abraham, the God of Moses and Isaac and Jacob. He's the God of of Esther and Ruth. He's the God of Mary. He's the God uh, of John the Baptist, the God of Paul and Peter and John. He, He is the one true God. He is over all. He's the sovereign one. He's the one that reigns as creator, the one who always was, always will be, who is now. He is through all and in all. He is the one whose hands are at work in your life right now. And faith in him, trust in him, allegiance to him is what binds us together. Church, if you think about these seven theological realities here, they can't be said of any other group holistically of people in your life. Not even your family. If they're all Christians, praise the Lord. But they can't always be said of of even your family that all these things you have in common. They can't be said of your coworkers. They can't be said of your best friends all the time but they can be said of the church. It's what binds us together. This reality of who God is and what he's done so that, why? Why are these things, why, why are these things holding us together? So that we can walk in the calling to which we have been called. This glorious calling to be vehicles of the kingdom of God on earth. Because in Christ, when we're bound together, glory abounds. So we got this. We got the motivation for unity. It's the calling that we've been called to. We've got the tools, uh, patience and gentleness and humility and bearing with one another in love, this bond of the spirit. Uh, we've, got, we've got all of these tools here at, at our hands. We've got the calling for unity to make every effort and we've got the bond that unites these realities of who God is. So what do we do with that? How do we actually walk in unity? How do we walk this out? What do we practically do? We got this, okay, we got it in our minds. All the stuff is there. What do we do to walk this out? I got two points to live this out this morning. The first is eagerly pursue unity in the church and in the church. You see, I did there with the punctuation. Eagerly pursue unity in the lowercase c, church, and the capital C, church. What do I mean? I mean, be eager to pursue unity in the local church here, Anchor Church, if you're a part of this church, whatever other church you're a part of, if you're a part of another church, and be eager to pursue unity in the global church. Both of those are important. Kyle uh, Klein Snodgrass says this well. He says, Christianity is a God-directed, Christ-defined, other-oriented religion. Christianity is a God-directed, Christ-defined, other-oriented Religion. Now, often in the church, we find that it is God-directed and Christ-defined. Where is the lack usually? It's in other-oriented. We like to think, well, as long as I got my stuff, as long as I'm having my quiet times, as long as I got my theology, as long as I got my understandings of the Bible, I'm good. But we don't get that in the church. Ephesians tells us right here, we've got to be united. We've got to be one, 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 seven times. We have to be others oriented as well, which means we need to eagerly pursue unity in the church. As we think about the local church, it's why we use this phrase of being passionately one as one of our values. Now, we didn't just pick that out because we thought it sounded catchy or because we could throw it in different places easily. No, we, we pulled that right here from Ephesians. Passionately one. 
It's what we're called to. We're called to eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We're called to be one in Christ because when we are, glory abounds. We need to be passionately one in the local church, which means we don't wanna be just punch the clock Christians. What do I mean by that? I mean, have you ever had a job where you just go and you punch the clock and get out of there? You just, I'm working my nine to five, I'm working my eight to four, whatever it is, I'm gonna punch the clock. When I start, I'm gonna punch that clock at 3.59 if I'm off at four and I'm out the door and I'm leaving this place in the dust. We, that's fine to do at work. If you do that at work, I don't care. We can't do that in the church. We can't be punch the clock Christians. We think, okay, I'm just gonna get in the door. Uh, you know, when Julie's like halfway through the first song, I'll sit down. When she's about halfway through the second song, we had to time it perfectly so no one stops us. We're getting out the door before anyone catches us. That's punching the clock Christianity. Or, or you know, I might show up to community group every now and then, but I'm not really gonna engage. I'll just be there, be a face in the crowd. I punched the clock, I did it, okay? Leave me alone, God. I got it, I'm good. No, the calling here is something much greater. It's to be eager, eager to maintain this unity. It's eager to be with one another, to be pressing into our shared faith in the Lord together. There's an eagerness, an earning to this that doesn't allow us to be punch the clock Christians. So think about the local church, we wanna be passionately one. And as we think about the global church, the, the uppercase C church, we wanna be purposely biblical. We wanna be purposely biblical, which is, if you, maybe you've heard this phrase before, but I think it's a biblical one. It says, unity in the essentials, liberty in the incidentals, and in all things charity. So unity in the essentials. What are the essentials? We read them this morning, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. These are the essential things that you believe about God that make you a Christian, faith in the gospel, one true God, the, the power of the spirit, all these things, this is required to be a Christian. If you believe anything else, you are a different religion, established or not. We wanna have unity in the essentials and liberty in the incidentals. Liberty meaning freedom in the secondary things. How do you think about your style of worship? It's not that big of a deal. I can have liberty in that. How do you think of, of the roles of men and women in the church? I can have liberty in that. How do you think about the gifts of the spirit functioning right now? I can have liberty in that. How do you think about political views? I can have liberty in that, right? Liberty in the incidentals and in all things charity or love. In all things, placing the other above yourself. In all things, sacrificing for one another, caring for one another. And as we think about the global church, we wanna have this kind of a mindset because here's the thing, church, when we are united, when we are bound together, glory abounds. So if we're gonna silo down and say, no, I don't want anyone who thinks differently than me. I don't want anyone who's got a different style of worship than I do. I don't want anyone who's got a different political view than I do. Just my little silo, if we're gonna silo, ourselves in our Christian bubble, we're gonna silo the glory of God in our lives. We're gonna see less of it and others are gonna see less of it through us. Church, we need the global church. We need people who think differently. I'll give you a, 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 for instance, this is one of the things that I do for my own sake, but also for your sake, to lean into the capital C church. Every time I prepare a sermon, I wanna check four boxes of the voices that I put at the table in my sermon prep. Person of color, a woman, someone who has a different uh, ecclesiological understanding so they think about church differently than I do and a church father. 
someone from the first century, second century, whatever it may be. Why? Because we need the, the, the witness of the global church to fill out our understanding of the glories of the things we read in this word. Silos don't help us see glory. Silos don't help us see glory. They help us see ourselves. And God's not made in our image. We're made in his image. So I want to have uh, eagerly pursue unity in the local church and in the church, the global church. And secondly, how we live this out, apply the, the virtues of verse two to that person or those people. You know, that person, whoever comes to your mind right now when I said that person or those people, you know, that person who just grinds your gears, that person who you just, you don't like, they bother you. They annoy you. Those people who you think, man, I don't want to be stuck in community with them. We should apply the, the virtues of verse two to that person and to those people. You know, the, the calling that we have here from Paul in Ephesians 4, it, it's far greater than just tolerance. It's far greater than just not being rude to someone or mean to someone. What Paul is calling us here to with this eagerness and this urging and humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, he's calling us to meaningful commitment to one another, even that person, even those people. How do you think about them? Do you apply the, the virtues of verse two? Are you humble with them? Do you approach their differing views with humility? Are you gentle with them? When you, when you talk with them or when you talk to others about them, are you gentle with your words? Are you patient in their differences, their quirks or their flaws? Because guess what? They've got to be patient with you and your differences. I want to encourage you to think about the last interaction that you had with a Christian that didn't go well. Or the last interaction that you had with another believer that didn't go so well. Were you humble? Or could you have been more humble? Were you gentle with them? Were you patient with them? Maybe you were the one being offended. Did you bear with them in love or did you escalate? Paul's calling here for us is to pursue radical community, even with people who aren't like us, but that share the same Lord, the same hope, the same faith, the one baptism, the one spirit, the one God and Father who is over all and in all and through all. Because in Christ, when we're bound together, glory abounds. We have a glorious calling to walk in and we're called to walk in it together. I wanna invite the band up as I prepare to close. And we're gonna go back to John 17. Let me just remind you, this is Jesus' prayer for you, that you may be perfectly one that you and I may be perfectly one. That's what Jesus prays. So that, so that the world may know that you, Father, have sent me, Jesus, and loved them even as you loved me. What is Jesus praying here? He's praying that to the extent that we are one, that we are united, that we are passionately one, as we say around here, to that extent, the world will see the love of the Father. For his people. To that extent, the world will know the goodness of Jesus for them. That is a high calling, isn't it? It's humbling, or it should be. The question for us is, is that our prayer? Are we praying that? God, let me be one with those people who aren't like me. God, let me be one in that relationship that's broken, because I want people to see your glory. 
help people to see your goodness because I believe that when I'm bound together with my brothers and sisters in Christ, even the ones that aren't like me, that glory abounds. Is that our prayer? Is that our goal? So that they may know. And to the extent that we grow in unity, how much more will our community see the love of Christ, know his goodness? May it be true of us. Let me pray for us. We're gonna sing a song and then we'll take communion together. Well, Lord, we believe your word. And so Lord, when we come... I really hope that you were encouraged by the sermon today. You can learn more about us at anchorchurchgilbert.com. We'd love to have you join our mailing list. You can do that on the website. If you have any questions for us about who Jesus is, please let us know through our website. I hope that you were encouraged.